Lord, thank you again for this chance to come and to open your word. Father, as we, uh, as we dive into the depth of what you have for us tonight, we need you. Uh, we don't come trying to use our intellect to figure out what it is that you want us to see. We, we humble ourselves like children tonight and we say, open our eyes, open our ears, help us to understand these uh, truths from your word. And Lord, at the same time, show us how specifically for each of us, you would have us apply these things in each of our lives. Father, we thank you for what you're going to do tonight. We thank you for the fact that you desire for us to learn even more than we desire to hear. And so we humble ourselves tonight and say, accomplish your purpose as we sit and listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. Paul continues and he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now back to verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. All right. Many have tried to take this verse to teach that borrowing money is wrong. Because here it says, owe no one anything. Well, that's not what this verse is first of all teaching, which we'll get to in a little bit. Nor does that interpretation match up with the whole of Scripture. Whenever you have someone say, look at what the Bible says right here in this verse. You've got to check that interpretation against the whole of Scripture. The whole of Scripture does not teach that borrowing and lending is wrong. But actually, the Bible allows lending and lending, lending money just with some regulations and stipulations. So go back with me to Exodus chapter 22. I'm going to just walk you through quickly a few passages in the Old Testament and the New that talk about lending and borrowing. Exodus chapter 22. Look at verse 25. In Exodus 22, verse 25, it says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. So we see here that lending and borrowing is okay, but if it's a brother, don't exact interest. We'll deal with more of that in just a little bit. Go to Leviticus chapter 25. Look at verses 35 through 38. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest. You can lend him money. Don't lend it at interest, nor give him your food if a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Jump over to Deuteronomy 15. Look at verses 7 through 11. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 15, starting in verse 7, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart uh, or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care that there, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give him to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake, for they'll never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother and the needy and to the poor in your land. In this passage, as he's talking about the same thing, saying, hey, uh, if you have a brother who becomes in need, you can lend him money. Don't exact interest. But also, as you, if you know about the law, there were certain years that became years of Jubilee. And at that time, all debts were forgiven. And if you say to yourself, well, I don't want to lend him money now because the year of Jubilee is coming quick and I might not get my money back. And he said, God says, if that's your attitude, be careful, be willing to give it to him, even if you don't get it back. But was lending not allowed? Borrowing taught that it's wrong? No. Lending was allowed. Keep going. Go to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 21. Psalm 37, and then we'll look at verses 25 and 26. Psalm 37, verse 21 says this. The wicked borrows... But does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. Verse 25, David says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 42. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 42. Scripture says this. It says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would what? Borrow from you. Does the Bible teach that borrowing and lending is wrong? No. So when someone takes that verse there in Romans 13, 8 and says, oh, no, and anything. And then they try to teach you that you should never take out a loan. That's not what the Bible teaches. Go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. and You'll be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful, as you know, as your father is merciful. Over the years, thank God for the fact that we, my wife and I just paid off our house this past June. It's a wonderful feeling. But we wouldn't be in that house and own it if there wasn't the ability to get the loan. Now, years ago, when my wife and I were needing a vehicle, because all of a sudden we're starting to have kids in the little pickup truck that we had, the Azuzu Pup wasn't going to hold me and her in a car seat. 
We needed a minivan. We didn't have the money for a minivan. And actually, we were living in New Orleans at the time. And, and uh, the pastor of the church we were serving at, he liked to wheel and deal and buying and selling cars at auctions and stuff. And he had a license to go to the auctions. And I told him, if you ever go to the auction and you see a minivan that we can afford, let us know. Well, he calls us up one day and says, get over here. It was a Dodge Caravan minivan. Now, Becky wasn't able to even go look at it. I hurried over to the auction, and he says, I found one here. You got a bid on it. Well, I knew what our limit was, and I'd never been to an auction. If you've ever been to one, you don't know what they're saying. All I know is, is I felt like God was saying, that's the one for you. And our limit that we agreed that we could get, which, by the way, we're going to have to borrow from our grandmother, that we, we didn't have it, was $6,000. And the, the auction starts going on, and it's back and forth, and it's between me and one other person. And I don't know what the auctioneer's saying. I just keep raising my paddle. Every, he raised his paddle, I raised my paddle. Raised his paddle, I raised my paddle. And I'm panicking, saying, Lord, help me, because I don't know what I'm bidding here. It just so happened, we found out afterwards, that the person I was bidding against wasn't going to go any higher than $6,000. And it was 5550 whatever. He stopped bidding. The next thing came up was 6000 I raised my paddle. And next thing I hear is sold $6,000. Becky's grandmother actually gave us the 6000 But she didn't charge us any interest. What a gift that was. It took us a little while to pay it back, but we paid it back. But the Bible doesn't teach that lending is a sin or borrowing is a sin. But the Bible does talk a lot, as you saw, about brothers and those who are in need not exacting interest. Is charging interest ever allowed in the scriptures? Well, the answer is yes. Go to Luke 23. Look at verses 19 through 20. In Luke 23, starting in verse 19. And I unfortunately wrote down the wrong passage of scripture in my notes. And I'm thinking, this isn't the right passage. And if I don't find it quick, I'm going to have to just tell you the answer is yes, and I don't have the scripture. And I apologize for that. What's the context? Yeah, right. Honestly, the context, I don't remember right offhand here, but there was a passage that I found that lending was okay and charging interest is okay. But it was not to those who were in the church, those who were brothers and sisters. It was to those who were outside. The whole context, the whole idea of, of that is simply this. If it's a brother and sister in Christ, you shouldn't be trying to make money on them. You should be helping them. That's the whole idea. But there are those who make their living off of lending. And there's nothing wrong with that. Just as long as... You understand that God's desire is that we as brothers and sisters in Christ need to take care of each other. So what, let's go back to Romans 13. Deuteronomy 23, 20. Deuteronomy 23:20. Let's go back and see if Becky found it. Deuteronomy 23:20. I don't know why I wrote Luke, but Deuteronomy 23 verses 19 and 20. Becky might have saved me. There we go. Again. Yes, there it is. Here it is. This is the context. Thank you, Becky. I'm going to make sure I write it down on my notes. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner 
interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. So to say that lending money for interest is a sin is not what the Bible teaches. But we as Christians should be not trying to make money off of our brother and sister in need. If you know someone in need, lend them money. And if, if they don't pay you back, God will take care of you. God will take care of you. Now, going back to Romans 13 then, so what's Paul teaching when he says to owe no one anything except to love one another? Well, the word owe is tied to paying what is due, and it's connected to what he just said in verse 7. Go back to verse 7. He's just said, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In other words, if you owe honor or respect or taxes to anyone, pay it, give it, don't withhold it. You should not withhold what you owe to anyone. You should pay all that you owe off. But why does he say then, except to love one another? Well, let me put it to you this way. To owe in this situation is not to give what is due or owed, pay off all your debts, but the one you will be forever owing is your responsibility to love one another. Don't think that debt's ever paid off. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying you're going to, there are lots of debts we should pay off, but don't ever think you'll ever pay off owing to love one another. You can say, well, I showed enough love to you. I'm done. No. The Bible says you're going to continually owe that debt the rest of your life. And that's what God commands. God's word, God's love, and Jesus himself commands us to love everyone. He paid our sin debt with his love for us and commands us to share this love with others. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Now here's where it starts moving from knowledge to, to wisdom. And knowing how the passage that we're looking at here wasn't talking about owing debts or lending with interest. This passage has been talking about the fact that we have been commanded to love one another, the whole world, and especially the brothers. First John chapter four, look at verse seven all the way to verse 21. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Stop real quick. When did God show his love for you after you said I need it or before? While you were still sinners, Romans 5 says, when you were still powerless, he died for you. And he sent his love, showed his love for you by sending his son. Therefore, if God so loved us, we should share that same kind of love with people that don't deserve it. In our minds, I don't think they deserve. Go, did you deserve it when God loved you? Well, no, exactly. And as you're going to see in just a little bit, not only does God's word and God's love command us to do it. Jesus himself commands us to love this way. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Now, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Now, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for that kind of fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears that way has not been perfected in love. And we love, why? Because he first loved us. Now, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot, he, he, he sorry, whoever loves his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you remember the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 about the man who had been forgiven a great debt. And then he runs into a fellow servant who had a lesser debt that was owed to him and he doesn't forgive him. The Bible says, and Jesus' story says, that when the master who had forgiven that first servant the great debt finds out that he hadn't forgiven the smaller debt to his other servant, he has him grabbed, thrown into jail until he can pay the big debt that he had owed off, which he never ever will be. Because if you actually go back and do the actual math of the number Jesus used in that story, in today's numbers, it would be a gazillion billion. I mean, seriously, it was an astronomical number to show that it was a number he'd never be able to pay off, especially if he's sitting in prison. But for years, that bothered me because Jesus, in this story, the master forgave the guy. But because he wouldn't forgive the other guy, he ends up having to go to hell. And I'm thinking, can you lose your salvation? Can you be forgiven? And then because you don't forgive... You don't go to heaven. And as I've grown in my knowledge of the Lord and the word and put it all together, the Bible is very clear that once you've been saved, you're eternally secure. And what Jesus was showing was that even though this man had been forgiven, the evidence that he had never received that forgiveness was his unforgiveness toward his brother. Did you catch it? Though Jesus has already forgiven the world. That doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, the book of Colossians says. Not counting men, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Not counting men's sins against them. And he's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. God, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the world. They're forgiven, they're paid. Now the only sin that sends you to hell is rejecting the gift. When you say, I won't receive Jesus as my Savior, you're saying, I'll pay my own debt. I don't accept his payment in, in my place. You now are guilty for all the sins you've committed, plus the biggest one that you've now trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant, which sanctified you, as it says in the book of Hebrews. And what does John say here? If you say, I love God, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of God, and you don't love your brother, listen, you're a liar and you're not saved. Pretty serious stuff, because if we truly have been born again, the love of God within us will be shared with the people around us. That's a tough thing to hear, but didn't Jesus teach us if you don't forgive your brothers their trespasses, God won't 
forgive yours. But here's the neat thing. If you've truly been born again and you understand what God's done for you, you have no problem loving the people around you because you understand the sin that you have been forgiven and what you've been forgiven. And so, folks, I just want to challenge you as we go a little bit further in this. We have a debt that we owe to the world and especially those in the body of Christ that we're to share the love of God with them at all times. Now, our flesh doesn't want to do that. But go back with me to John chapter 15. Let's go back. We just saw that John had said that we have this commandment from him. Let's go back to where Jesus commanded it. In John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. By the way, this is not the first time he said it. Go back with me to John 13. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, it's a couple of things I want to chase real quick on this. I'm going to ask you an honest question, and I want honesty today. Can you love the way Jesus loved? No. no. Can God through you love people the way Jesus? Yes. And that's what we have to understand is that's this whole life of obedience to Christ and living out the good works that he has for us is learning how to say no to our flesh and yes to the spirit. God will give you the ability to love people. And to forgive people, even when your flesh doesn't want to. Yes, go ahead. Um, we talk about love all the time, but what's the definition of it? I that's the second part. Is the part that's the, you, people need to know that first. Yeah, exactly. That's where we're heading next, the second part. There are two things I wanted to chase. One is you're not able to do this. God will do it through you. The second thing is this. Love does not mean accepting whatever people do as okay. That's what a lot of people are trying to say now, even those in some churches. They try to say that if you love them, you'll say that their lifestyle is acceptable and okay. If you don't agree with my lifestyle, you don't love me. No, no, no. The Bible says that we're to speak what in love? The truth. If I really love you, I will tell you the truth. If I'm afraid to tell you the truth, I love myself more than I love you. Because I'm more interested in you liking me than you being okay with God. Years ago, I don't know how many of you remember it, but there was a, a, a chemical spill on a train track up by I-10 between Jacksonville and Tallahassee. It's many, many, many years ago, but there was a train wreck and the cars fell over and chemical, it was not visible, but a cloud of chemicals was washed across I-10. And as people drove through that area, they died. They were just asphyxiated by it. 
Once people realized what was going on, there were people that were trying to stop cars as they were heading through I-10 to say, you can't see it, you can't see it, but there's something there that's going to kill you, don't go. Would you be loving if you said, well, let them do whatever they want to do in their own life? No, no. if you love them, you would tell them you will die if you head in this direction. And we need to, is what I think is what you're trying to get to, Bill, we need to scripturally be willing to share the truth with people. Again, not our job to convince them, not our job to change their minds, but we have to be willing to share truth and love. Unfortunately, too many Christians have, in their desire to be biblical and fundamental and faithful to the word, been jerks. Does God say certain things are sin? Yes, he does. There is sin. But to go beyond that and say God hates you now because you do all that, that doesn't what the scripture teaches at all. Actually, God loves you and he doesn't want you to live like this and he doesn't want you to die separated from him. And so we want you to understand when we talk about loving one another and owing this debt to the world and to our brothers, especially our brothers and sisters, if we love each other, we'll share the truth. But in love. And too many of us, unfortunately, are in a hurry to go share what we think our brother and sister need in love when we are really building ourselves up because we can point out what you're doing. And no, the Bible says, be real careful. You have examined yourself real good before you even ever go and talk to somebody about something else. Go to Proverbs chapter 3. I think one of the passages you were just thinking about, Bill, as well, as well in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says the love of Christ compels us to tell people the truth. Actually, he was thinking of 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> yes, the definition of love, 1 Corinthians 13, and how love is patient and kind and gentle. It's not about you, it's going on. Exactly. That's it. Go to Proverbs 3, look at verses 25, 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it to you when you have it with you. When we see needs sometimes, we have to prayerfully wrestle with, is God wanting me to meet this need? Now, we have to be careful that we don't turn the scriptures into a law. You could take these verses and say, well, every time I see a guy on the street corner, I'm supposed to do something. No. To whom it is due is very important. Sometimes God says, even though there's a need there, I don't want you to meet it just yet because I want this person to hit the bottom. We don't know. And the spirit of God will show us what God's doing. There are times that God will use you blessing somebody and meeting the need. There are other times that you will actually help them by not meeting the need. Years ago, a wonderful preacher, Vance Abner, said this. He said, if someone had given the prodigal son a soup and a sandwich, he'd have never gone home. And we need to, again, as in all of these things that we talked about when it comes to rebelling against authority and so on, we need to let the Spirit of God guide us in each situation. But there will be times that the Spirit of God is saying, this is a need that I've had you run across and I want you to meet it. And if your brain, which is normal, goes to, but what if I don't get this money back? Lord, I trust you on that, too. I gave it. It's a gift. If it's paid back, it's paid back. If it's not, it's not. You'll take care of me. All right. 
The Ten Commandments, actually, Paul goes on here in Romans 13 and says the Ten Commandments will be kept perfectly by loving God and loving each other. Go back to Romans chapter 13. Look at verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Go back to Matthew chapter 22. Look at verses 34 through 30. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus said, do you want to know what the greatest commandment is? Love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor. Second one's just like it as yourself. And I promise you, you'll keep the whole, all the commandments. Leviticus chapter 19. Look at verse 18. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And people for years said, well, where did Jesus get that? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second point. Where does that? Well, that's where it comes from. Le Leviticus 19, verse 18. But let's go a little deeper. Go to James chapter 2. And look at verse 8. In James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Then he goes on and says, but if you show partiality, you're breaking the law. Listen. The royal law is to love the, your neighbor as yourself. How are you keeping the law of God? Because he's about to say in verse 10 of chapter 2, if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. How are you, by loving your neighbor as yourself, fulfilling the whole law? Help me out. Actually, I think there's a lot of people that don't have the ability to love their neighbors because they don't love themselves. Well, that's another whole message for another time. Sheila, you're right. There, those people have trouble because they don't love themselves. They can't love their neighbor as themselves. But and let's they go. They don't love themselves because they don't understand the love that God has for them. Exactly. But we're talking to Christians who should know the love of God. And that's why the Bible says we should be spending our time. That's why Paul prayed in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and following, that we would come to understand the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of God. Because when we really come, to, as we read in 1 John 4, come to know and believe that the love God has for us, then it, it will just start automatically splashing out on the people around us. Go to Matthew 7. This maybe might help you answer this question. Go to Matthew 7, verse 12.
So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. There it is again. Now, you all know what this is, right? This is the what? The golden rule. Whatever you would have someone do to you, you do to them. And you'll fulfill the law. If you love your neighbor as you love yourself, and even though some people do struggle with loving themselves, they still kind of don't. Because we all are very fleshly. We all live, want to live for self. You want to understand how to love the people around you? How would you like them to treat you in this situation? You start doing that. And that's why Paul goes on and he says, you know what? If you... Love your neighbor. You won't kill them. You won't lie to them. You won't covet their stuff. You understand what I'm saying? You just all these commandments that are there. It's all fulfilled by loving God and loving your neighbor. That's the fulfillment of the law. Now, the specifics of how this plays out in each of our lives, the Spirit of God will show us, because we've all been given different gifts, and we're to love people according to the gifts God's given us and the way He's gifted us. But the main thing is this. We should pay off any debt we owe. We should pay it off. Except there's one you'll never pay off, and that is to love one another. And Jesus Himself said, I command you to love each other the way I've loved you. By the way, um... Was Jesus misunderstood? Was Jesus, well, let's just say, did he have the right to claim a whole lot more respect than he got while he was here? Oh, without question. I mean, he was the creator of the universe. He made every single person. He knew who was mocking him. He knew who was spitting on him. He knew who was calling him demon-possessed. He knew everything about them, yet he humbled himself and he took it. Why? Because of the Father's plan, and down the road, God was going to use it for His purposes, which we all gather every Sunday to worship and thank God for it. But how many of us today have fallen prey to the preaching that says, you have rights? No, I gave up my rights when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Now I live my life in obedience to Him. Will there be times that He tells me, like we looked at last week, to pull my Roman citizen card out? Yes. But will there be other times that he says, keep it in my pocket and take the beating? Yes. And we need to know how to walk with the Lord and be led of the Spirit in each situation. And so go to Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 16. I'm not going to encourage you to go through the law and see how you're doing against the law and the Ten Commandments. I'm going to encourage you to learn to walk with Jesus. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. You see in your Bibles, that's a capital S. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Our focus is, should not be on how well we're doing in comparison to the law, but actually just how close are we walking to Jesus? Because I promise you, if you learn to walk with Jesus and let him have control, you won't break the law. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. There's lots of reasons why. I'm just going to deal with one. But examining yourself to how well you're doing when it comes to lying or how well you're doing when it comes to stealing or when how well you're doing when it comes to this, that or the other. When you examine yourself, the Bible says very clearly, one, you're not going to give yourself a fair assessment. You're not going to be honest with yourself. 
How many of you have thought to yourself, well, yeah, I know that, but that one's okay. It's not that big of a deal. That was just a white lie. Or it's not as bad as so-and-so. Very good point. When we examine ourselves, we won't do very good. Actually, there's only two places in the Bible that I even see where it says you should examine yourself. One is in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? That's a very important thing. I think you should examine yourself to find out if Jesus is in you. By the way, how many of you have examined yourself and you know that Jesus is in you. Show of hands. All right, now, do you need to do that anymore? No. If Jesus is in you, is he ever going to leave? No. no. So you don't need to examine yourself whether or not Jesus is in you. Once you've done that, you're done. He's in you. Now, whether or not you let him have control is another whole issue. But what I'm saying is this. You don't need to examine yourself as to whether or not you're saved. Now, Satan will mess you up by making you question your salvation. I've been down that road. That's no fun. And once I finally had that settled in my heart, I put the helmet of salvation on. He can't, Satan can't mess with me in that area anymore. So I don't need to examine myself to see if I'm saved. I'm saved. Exactly. That's what we're talking about. Now, there's one other place. It's in 1 Corinthians 11 where it talks about when we come to the Lord's Supper and the Lord's table, we're to examine ourselves as whether or not we're treating the body of Christ properly. For years we were taught that you're to examine the body and the blood of Jesus that you're holding in your hands and all this stuff. And No, that passage is actually saying you're guilty of sinning against the body and the blood when you don't consider the body. It doesn't say you don't consider the body and the blood. It says when you don't consider the body. The whole context of 1 Corinthians is the division that was there in the church. It starts in chapter 1. I hear from Chloe's household that there's division among you. And you guys are all fighting with each other. Or I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos. Or so on. And he's dealing with the division that's happening in the church. Sin that's being approved of in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 6. Where there's sexual immorality going on. And they're all okay with it. And, and a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And then he gets into chapter 11. And he says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you guys are taking. Because you won't even do it together. The whole purpose is of, of what Paul, if you remember, and some of you may not know this, but when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 11, when he says, for what I received from the Lord and I passed on to you, that's the first recording in the Bible we have of what Jesus said in the upper room. Well, what about Matthew and Mark and Luke? No, no. Those were all written after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So the first recording we have in the Bible of what Jesus said that night was actually written by Paul. And Paul wasn't there. But listen to what Paul says that Jesus told him and taught him when he was taught by him face to face. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And that you is plural. Very clear. This meal was to be taken as a reminder that he died for us. Why? Because this commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. And so will the world know that you're my disciples by your love one for another. They weren't even eating that meal together. And he says, you're not considering the body when you take the Lord's Supper. And the Bible says that when you take the Lord's Supper, let the Spirit speak to you. How am I feeling toward the body? Now, all the other times in the scripture 
The Bible talks about letting the Holy Spirit examine us. David wrote in Psalm, uh, uh, jumped out of my head here, Psalm, uh, I think it's 39, Psalm 39, at the end of of Psalm 39, he says, Lord, you search my heart. You know whether or not there's any wicked way in me. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 said, I I, I don't care if I'm examined by any of you all. In fact, I don't even examine myself. I wouldn't give myself a fair assessment. The Lord is the one who's going to bring to light what's in our hearts. And so I want to encourage you, don't get sucked into from this lesson tonight, checking yourself against the law to see how you're doing. You won't give yourself a fair assessment or you might beat yourself up more than God ever wants to. And let me say this to you, just Walk with Jesus and he'll work on those areas. But keep this in mind. He's commanded us to love one another. Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, he said, if you love me, you will what? You'll keep my commandments. Now, this love, we are commanded to pay. But not only should we be living this way because of Jesus' love for us, but also because his return and our reward is getting closer each day. In the time we have left, let's wrap up chapter 13. Look at what he says next in verses 11 to the end of the chapter. Besides this, all the stuff we just looked at, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The imminent return of Jesus for his church is what should motivate us to live godly lives as we get ready to meet him when he comes. In Revelation 22, verse 12, what does Jesus say? Behold, I'm coming quickly and my what is with me? My reward. There's going to be a reckoning for each of us, folks. We're we're guaranteed heaven. If you're saved and Jesus is in you, you've been sealed. You're guaranteed eternity with God. Yet there's still going to be a judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. Well, we'll receive for what we've done in the body after salvation, whether good or whether it's worthless. Go to Titus chapter 2. I think one of the reasons why, unfortunately, a lot of churches in Christendom today teach that the return of Christ isn't something to be looking for, but we're to be looking for this world to turn around, is actually, I think it's an enemy's attack to keep us from doing what the scripture says. The Bible says the expectation of Jesus' any moment return will fuel our holy living. Listen to what Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and following says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The Bible says that when we understand that the, the return of Jesus could come at any moment, you've heard me teach on this before, the church was not taught to watch for the Antichrist. The church has been taught to look for Jesus and watch for Jesus Jesus himself in John 14 says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. 
The church was taught early on in the church, and unfortunately it got lost for a period of time in church history, but the church was taught at the beginning that Jesus' return could happen at any moment. That's why there were people who were getting lazy and weren't willing to work, and there was a lot of women becoming busybodies and stuff, because the early church, they were all looking for the soon return of Jesus. They were taking care of each other, and then it ended up being longer than they expected, and they started to change their theology a little bit. Jesus had already told them. Back in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, I could come and you better be ready because you don't know when the master's coming. Remember he told the story of the, the servant who got drunk and beat the other servants and the master came back quicker than he expected. But Jesus, knowing that we'll try to figure out the exact timing of what he just said, then tells the story about the ten virgins and how it took a long time for the master to come back and the bridegroom and some were ready and some weren't. And then what does he do? He wraps it all up in the third parable there, the parable of the talents. And he just says, the big issue is not how soon I come back or how long it takes me to come back, but the fact that you're ready when I come back, because when I come back, there'll be a reckoning. And the early church was taught to be ready for the imminent return. Think how long ago this was written in Romans 13. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Wait a minute. If I already have salvation, how is my salvation nearer than when I first believed? I thought I already had it. Yeah, your faith will become sight. Remember, we've talked about this a bunch. The Bible talks about your salvation has three parts. And whenever the Bible talks about salvation, we always read justification. Oh, no, the Bible's looking at all three aspects of your salvation. When you got saved, you were justified. You were declared as if you'd never sinned. You were righteous in the eyes of God. You are saved. Yet the Bible also talks about the fact that we're in this process of being conformed into the image of Christ. The Bible calls it sanctification. In Hebrews chapter 9, I think it's around verse 14, the scripture says that God has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So am I perfected forever? Or am I being sanctified? The answer is yes. Oh, and the Bible also says in a couple of places that when Jesus comes, he's bringing salvation with him. One day this salvation will be complete. But I thought it is complete. It is and it isn't. You've gotten all of Jesus you ever need and ever going to get. You're seated in the heavenly realms, yet you're still in a time and place in which God is working out what he's done. And one day it will turn into what we call glorification. We get rid of these bodies. We're no longer having to deal with that mess. And the fullness of our salvation will be realized by us. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that in God's eyes, he already sees you there. That's why Jesus can look at Peter and say to him, Simon, Simon. But then when Peter says, I'm not going to deny you, he looks at him in love and says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. I love that. When Jesus points out how Peter's going to blow it, he calls him by his new name. I see the finished product, even though it doesn't look like it right now. And we need to hang on to that fact. But don't think I'm already perfect. I've been made complete. No, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience through what he was suffered and he was made perfect. Not crazy. I thought he was complete. Yes, but he also had to go through a shaping and a training in the flesh so that he could become just like us. Go to first Peter, chapter one. 
Look at verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in this, the last time. Isn't that interesting? He's already given us, we've been born again, to an inheritance that can't perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us, for a salvation that's going to be revealed in the last time. Now in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. What? The salvation of your souls. Isn't it interesting in this passage? He goes from saying you've been born again, given this salvation, it's kept in heaven for you, and one day salvation will be revealed and you'll obtain what you're hoping for. You're going to get what you already have. I think this is actually a blessing for us. Because one, I think if we thought that we were already done, we wouldn't be worth a whole lot here. And two, it helps me. I'm going to say, I don't know about you, but I do know about you. You're as fleshly as me. You still struggle in this flesh, don't you? You, you understand Paul's writings where he said, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I, don't, I, don't, I do want to do, I don't. You know, oh, it can save me from this body. I understand that same struggle, and it's a daily struggle that we're going to have. But thank God he's going to finish what he started. And even though my flesh doesn't want to love people the way Jesus loves me, my flesh wants to love me. Jesus has said, I command you to do this. And this is a debt you'll never finish owing. I want you to love each other. Oh, other debts, things you owe, pay them. But this one you'll never pay off. And keep that in mind. Oh, and by the way, you're going to need my grace to be able to make these payments. Because I've designed it that you have to come to me on a daily basis. I will give you the grace, but I'll only give you grace for what? For today. When Jesus, the manna, was provided for them. It was only for each day. And that's how God's designed it for each of us. Go to Romans chapter 8, verses 23 through 25. There's another passage that talks about what we already have and yet we don't have it. Romans 8, 23 through 25. He's just said in verses 8, verse 16, that his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're his children and we're co-heirs with Christ. But listen to verse 23. And not only the creation... But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
Isn't that interesting how the scripture says you've already been saved and the spirit confirms that you're his and you're co-heirs with Christ, yet we're still waiting for it? Folks, we're going to have to let the spirit of God let this truth sink into our hearts. Look at verses 29 and 30, though. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also will glorify or has glorified. It's past tense, isn't it? It's glorified. I think that might make me a little bit easier for you to love. If you actually realize, you know what? God's going to finish with Jim. He's going to be all right. There's going to be things we do for, to each other and, and that will offend each other or hurt each other. But like you've heard me say with you before, every one of us would agree that God's not done with us. Correct? Yet we treat each other like God should be already done with them. We should remember that just like God's not done with me, he's not done with them. And when they do things that offend us or hurt us or whatever, and it's hard for us to love one another, just remember um, they're still a work in progress, too. And the grace that God gives me, he has given to them as well, and he wants me to share it with them. Knowing that when our time on earth is done, we'll be judged, not for salvation, but for rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, to determine our eternal reward, we should be getting more and more serious about being ready for that day as each day passes. My family will tell you, I like getting older. Most people don't. They don't want to acknowledge their birthday or they don't want to know how old they are and all this stuff. I got to be honest with you. I've always, my, it drives my wife crazy. I'll ask ladies, how old are you? And she'll like, you don't ask a woman that. Well, I, in my mind, I like getting older. I remember when I was pastor here at this church and I turned 40 while I was here. And I remember thinking, maybe they'll start listening to me. I'm 40 now. I'm not a young preacher boy anymore. Now I'm 57, about to turn 58. And I love getting older. And my family will tell you this is the truth. You know why I like getting older? Because every day I'm a day closer to heaven. It's real. It's real. And I'm going there. And there's a place prepared for me. And I can't wait. Now, I'm not going to head there until Jesus says it's time. But at the same time, I'm excited about what is to come. I'm not living for this world. Folks, as things get crazier, so many people lament. Hey, the Bible said this was what it's going to be. We're strangers. We're sojourners. We've been blessed to be here in America in this season. We've had privileges. Other people and Christians around the globe have never even tasted. But let me tell you, the Bible's true. There's going to be an increase of godliness and wickedness. Our nations are all going to turn their back on God. At one point, every nation that survives at that point is going to be going to Jerusalem to fight against Jesus. Things are going to get worse. We are to be looking for Jesus. Let me read it to you this way again. Besides all the commandments of God to love one another, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer now to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. We've, we've left that stuff. The day is at hand. We're people of the day. We're not people of the darkness. So let's not live like people of the darkness. Let's live like people of the day. 
But how do we do that? Well, we start making the set of rules and Christians and the people that are of the day, they do these things and don't do those things. No, we're not under law. We're under grace. So what does he tell us? Verse 14. Put on, you put off the junk and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But I thought I already had Jesus. Yes, but you choose each day whether or not he's going to be in control. And don't make provisions for the flesh. That sounds a lot like Romans 12, 1 and 2, doesn't it? This all ties back together. Folks, the Bible is so clear that one day we're going to experience. Write these verses down. We'll look at them later on. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10. Paul talks about he can't wait to put on his new body and get out of this tent and get on get his heavenly body. Because one day we are all going to face the judgment seat of Christ. And this is what he says. So we make it our aim, our goal to please him, whether we're in the body or out of the body. We want to be out of the body and at present with the Lord. But in the meantime, if we're here, we should be making it our goal to please him. First Corinthians three, verses 10 through 15. Again, look at that later on. First Corinthians 10 through 15. The Bible says that once the foundation of salvation has been laid, we should be careful how we build on top of that foundation. Because everything we do after salvation will be judged by fire. And if it survives the test, we'll be rewarded. If it doesn't, it'll be burnt up and we'll suffer loss. We'll be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. And I don't want to be somebody that walks around heaven smelling like smoke. I don't want to have somebody go up next to me in heaven and go, boy, he barely made it. No, I am taking serious. The things get crazier. The more and more I'm ready for the return of Jesus. And the Bible says the expectation of the imminent return of Jesus at any moment should fuel us to holy living. Oh, one last thing. Notice how God is not expecting perfection yet, but growth in this process. Man, I love that. Look at what it says. You know the time. The hours come for you to wake from sleep. Is he writing to Christians or non-Christians? Christians. Who are maybe getting a little lazy, a little sleepy when it comes to what's going on in the time we're in. Your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He's writing to believers. The night is far, far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. This stuff we wrestle with in this flesh. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I don't have time to walk you through it because we're wrapping up now. But... In the book of Colossians, we see it in chapter 3. We're to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. And we're to put off the old man and put on Christ. And it lists those two different things. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following says that we've already received all of God we're ever going to get. And now we've been given these great and divine promises and the ability to live them out. Therefore, add to your faith, love, and knowledge, and so on. And this will keep you from being ineffective in your walk with Jesus. Folks... As crazy as the world is getting and as crazier as it gets, it should strive you and cause you to want to live for Jesus even more because the day is at hand. Oh, and let me say one last thing. Jesus's return is going to come in your lifetime. Jim, did you just say the rapture is going to happen in my life? No, I didn't say the rapture is going to happen. I don't know when the rapture is going to happen, but it is going to happen. But the return of Jesus for you 
is going to happen in your lifetime. Correct? Therefore, how many of us know whether or not we have tomorrow promised? Therefore, should, what should we do? We should stop hitting the snooze button and wake up from our slumber and take serious the days that we're living in. And let Jesus show you what that means and how you live it out. I love you all. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.